Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you as per usual. And John, we are fortunate to have with us uh, today one of our colleagues uh, here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Senior Litigation Counsel, Peggy Little, fresh from an appearance with me at counsel table uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court in the SEC v. Cochran case. Welcome to Administrative Static, Peggy. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's great to, it's great to have you here. Um, uh, I, I want to talk about the the oral argument because I think that it went well for our client, uh, Michelle Cochran. Uh, but I think that that there were probably I, I don't always think you could tell what's going to happen uh, from from oral argument. Uh, but I thought in this case, the justices uh, put quite a few of their cards on the table. What what did you think in that regard? I would have to agree. Um, no justice said that the SEC should have an opportunity to decide first whether ALJs are lawful, um, which was what they had been arguing in their papers. Um, and uh, I think there was an implicit in- assumption that the Free Enterprise Fund case had a powerful bearing on the case, not only on the jurisdictional question, but perhaps the merits. At least no one seemed to think that that was an open question on removal. So that was a good sign for us. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And maybe I should take one step back. We've talked about this case a lot on the program, but for those uh, tuning in for the first time to the podcast or the show, uh, the, the question in the SEC v. Cochran case is whether or not the constitutional objection that our client Michelle Cochran has to the SEC, which involves the fact that uh, judges, uh, administrative law judges at the SEC are protected from removal by the president by multiple layers of tenure protection. Uh, th- that that uh, poses uh, a problem with the president's ability to take care that the laws are faithfully uh, executed. So that's a structural constitutional objection to the tribunal. And Michelle Cochran's claim is that she should be able to raise that objection to the tribunal before she has to engage in multi years of proceedings in front of that tribunal, which could ultimately uh, be be futile uh, and and so forth. Uh, and so uh, uh, Peggy had argued this uh, case multiple times uh, in the courts below, bringing it uh, up to the uh, Supreme Court, uh, including winning a stay of the administrative uh, proceedings and uh, ultimately a victory in the en banc Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. So, uh, so Peggy, uh, where do you think it stands now? So I'm not going to ask you to, to predict which justices are going which way, but what was the sort of trend of the, of the argument, did you think? Well, the trend of the argument um, got off to a good start when uh, the chief, Justice Roberts, said, doesn't free enterprise stand as a pretty insurmountable barrier to your argument? And even Justice Kagan uh, conceded that free enterprise fund was uh, argued heavily in favor of Michelle Cochran and also Axon's uh, position. And I think we should probably add here that 
in a case called Axon. We're going to talk about that in the next segment. Okay, so I don't exactly. think we have to, okay. to, to jump into that just yet. Okay. So any, in any event, um, those were pretty strong statements um, from justices on opposing uh, sides of the court at, very often. So that was very uh, encouraging. And the author of Free Enterprise Fund in Chief Justice Roberts. So exactly. if he thinks that case covers it, that, you know, probably tells you where he is. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if Justice Kagan seems to agree. Right. Now, I, I should add, this is a jurisdictional question at this point and does not uh, necessarily speak to the merits, although certainly Free Enterprise Fund uh, speaks to the merits uh, pretty powerfully. That's right. Can she raise this question in federal district court or does she have to go through the administrative proceeding first and then appeal it uh, from there to the Court of Appeals, never appearing in district court? That's what the government would want her to do. And that was the other great thing about the um, argument. There are really three ways to look at this case, I think, boils down. You can either say that the statutes, in, in Michelle's case, that would be the 1934 Act, mm -hmm. clearly read provides that you retain district court jurisdiction to bring constitutional uh, challenges. But there's another approach, um, which is uh, to interpret the precedents, whether it be free enterprise fund or two cases known as Thunder Basin and Elgin. Let's let's stick with the textual argument for just a second before we sure. jump to Thunder Basin. So uh, one of the justices, I think it might have been uh, a Justice uh, Gorsuch, uh, but I, but now I can't remember it whether, was. It was, whether it was in the Axon case or in the Cochrane case. But he but he said, what am I missing? He said, <laughs> Section 1331 gives jurisdiction. Uh, the the SEC Act gives jurisdiction to the Court of Appeals when there's a for appellate review when there is a final order. There is no final order here. There's nothing in the statute that strips jurisdiction. That's the whole story, right? Was, I mean, it was Gorsuch to to Greg. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 uh, <laughs> actually I think he said that that to uh, Malcolm Stewart. And the, the reason I said is I want to make sure I understand 1331 grants jurisdiction to district courts. The FTC Act uh, grants jurisdiction courts of appeals for cease and desist orders. There's no withdrawal of jurisdiction anywhere in these statutes. And so you're asking us to turn to the APA. Is that right? <laughs> so that was not a question I would have wanted to. Um, hurled at me, <laughs> put it that way. So but, unsurprisingly, perhaps the textualists on the court find that there's a textualist solution to this uh, question. There was a very funny moment where um, it was um, Justice Alito who uh, said not to not to be simplistic about this. And, and he was corrected uh, by uh, Paul Clement and said, uh, I think uh, uh, Simplistic may may not be the right word. How about um, straightforward? Straightforward. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then he, they, he suggested textual, which they seem to both agree on <laughs> might be the approach. And that, of course, means you look at the statute. And that's our first and we think controlling argument. Um, but you had asked earlier also about whether people should have to go through this process uh, before they can challenge it or not. And that was also terrifically encouraging. I call that the logic argument. It just makes no sense. And, and going through the transcript, makes no sense comes up a lot. Uh, Justice Alito said, what sense does it make for, to, for a claim that goes to the very structure of the agency proceeding, having to go through the administrative process? He, he asked the uh, government attorney, isn't it in in your interest to get this decided soon. This hangs over all of your proceedings. Um, 
Justice Roberts was concerned about having uh, multiple proceedings that go over and over again. Don't we have a case here for direct resolution of these matters now? Mm -hmm. And he talked also about a constellation of cases that would be affected by this. A constellation of cases covering some rather basic questions about the Constitution and, yeah. and how they interact with these agencies. Yeah. Justice Kavanaugh said, what makes the most sense? Uh, and then I, I really love Justice Thomas's uh, question, who said, tell me what it would look like to have an ALJ decide these things. And that's another way of getting at the logic question, because it makes no sense for an ALJ to rule on his or her own ability to rule in the case. Right. And they don't have uh, authority to decide constitutional questions. And so that was uh, another powerful way to point out why it makes no sense to do that. So we've talked argument. about the textualist argument. We've talked about the the, the argument from precedent in uh, in terms of uh, free enterprise fund. Uh, what are the other arguments in favor of jurisdiction here? Well, the arguments in favor of jurisdiction are, even if you look at some of the case law precedents, uh, one of them is called Thunder Basin, the other is called Elgin, um, correctly understood uh, those cases do not stand in the way of jurisdiction. Uh, we have argued in all of our papers that if you apply the three factors of Thunder Basin correctly, uh, the court would have to agree that there would be jurisdiction in the, in the district courts. Uh, and that was also argued by Axon as well. In fact, they, they argued that as an opening uh, argument on that. I think um, what was fun was um, <clears throat> Justice Kagan came out and said to the government attorney, I was surprised your brief doesn't even get to Thunder Basin until page 51. Are you afraid of losing under Thunder Basin? <laughs> And, and, and this comes from the former Solicitor General, Elena Kagan. <laughs> who knows, uh, you know, has published on administrative law. There's no question she has a background in that. Well, and, and knows what the Solicitor General's office does when it doesn't like a precedent or you know, thinks <laughs> exactly. that it might not work out well for them. So, and Justice Kavanaugh um, took a shot at, at Thunder Basin. He, he said it actually has not been helpful. And he, uh, we have all argued all along that Thunder Basin is a textual and, and really irrelevant. And one of the frustrating parts about this case, arguing it below, was that neither Thunder Basin nor Elgin involved a situation where someone was making a claim that the administrative tribunal itself was unconstitutionally fashioned. In Thunder Basin, there was a question about, about posting at mines and you know whether you had to whether the statute covered that or whether that was something that fell outside of the statute. Uh, but they were not claiming that the administrative um, adjudication process was unconstitutional. And the same holds true for Elgin. In Elgin, there was the tribunal was fine, um, but you, um, the question there was, do, could you bring a separate um, federal court action? So they really were not relevant. The other thing that was interesting is Justice Alito said, does anyone here know whether you have to win on all three Thunder Basin factors? That was a very interesting question, and nobody knew. There wasn't a, there wasn't a good answer to be <laughs> no. uh, to be had. Yeah, uh, and uh, and I want to pause and, and give kudos to Greg Gar at Latham and Watkins who argued this case uh, for for Michelle. He and his team at, at Latham uh, were were great partners in this uh, in this effort. We were very happy to have them. Last question for you, Peggy. Uh, it seemed to me that that the the court was was poised to, to grant jurisdiction here. 
but it wasn't clear that the justices had reached any consensus on the scope of, of that jurisdiction in other future cases. Do you have a thought on what the scope of the jurisdiction they might afford here is? Well, that was certainly um, an issue raised in the, the uh, Justice Sotomayor and Jackson. But um, yeah, I think they had two answers on questions as Welcome back to Administrative Static. Uh, you know, Peggy and Mark were just talking about the Cochrane case, but it, that's our case. And a companion case called Axon has to do with the same type of issue with the FTC rather than the SEC. Right, the they, Federal Trade Commission. Right. They both have ALJs who do their administrative law processes. So why? what's at issue here? And, and why these cases are so important is the government says that when you get enmeshed in an SEC or an FTC administrative hearing or any other kind of administrative hearing with this type of statute. Um, you have to stay in that administrative hearing for as many years as they want to keep you there. And your only recourse is after they've found all the facts and, and subjected to you whatever the processes is, which are not the federal rules of civil procedure you get in a in district court. That's right. And not the federal rules of evidence either. And, and so you then can go to an appellate court somewhere and the appellate court gives you all of the justice you need. Now, there's a big problem with that because the appellate courts have this deference. They will defer to the facts found in the administrative agency, not using the federal rules, not using juries. So there's a lot of problems with it. That's right, the- right. They defer to this defective administrative record that wasn't created with the kind of due process that we would ordinarily anticipate. Right. And so in Axon, and I will say this, I, I we had a luncheon law that I, I I, I think you should all take a look at because I have been involved in the Axon case since its inception as well, doing um, amicus briefs and stuff. And I had never really realized some of the differences in the cases that had to do with the ALJ and the FTC sometimes listens to the uh, to the person who's accused, right? And in, and the ALJ in the SEC never listens. He's like a hanging judge. There were two different times, but the result is always the same because the process is so bad that you can have a good ALJ or a bad ALJ, but it doesn't matter because the administrative process kills everybody. Um, so that really came true yeah. to me that I, I'd never noticed before because I'd never seen them together. No, that was a good insight to glean from from the luncheon law uh, this week. And folks should check that out on NCLA's website at nclalegal.org if they want to see Michelle Cochran uh, in person speaking for herself and Pam Peterson, the general counsel of Axon, speaking for the company. That was a, a good event. Uh, and, and so at the Supreme Court, uh, Axon was arguing, hey, look, just like we were, that when there's a constitutional attack on the whole process, in this case, it is that the ALJs are uh, have have too many protections. The president can't remove them, so there's no political control. So they're just off on their own. No accountability. No accountability at all. So 
in both these cases, you go to a district court and you get an injunction saying you can't force me through this process because these this these statutes that allow this are unconstitutional. The the administrative process cannot declare something unconstitutional. And the government was pretty candid about that, I thought, and, and has been um, because one of the frustrations with litigating these cases is that uh, oftentimes the judges just say, well, shouldn't the administrative agency be able to look at this first? And you get these questions from district court judges. And in Axon, they got a very good district court judge, but he was like, I, I think that I'm bound by Thunder Base and all this. And I think maybe they can give something to it, but they really can't do anything because the ALJs themselves will tell you, I can't strike myself down. That's not part of my thing. And in fact, in this case, Judge Chappelle and the FTC recused himself. He recused himself. He says, how can I make that decision? And it went up to the commission. The commission says, well, we're not recusing ourselves. We're all constitutional. Everything's constitutional. Everything's, Move forward. Everything's hunky-dory. Right. And so one of the things, um, I had not been back to the Supreme Court since the pandemic. And um, uh, I had, and, and um, Mark and Peggy were at the council table. But one of the things about it, if you've never been, is you're extremely close to the justices, extremely close. close. I was almost as close to Justice Barrett as I am to you right now. That's it ex- was it's, <laughs> very it's, close. And it's always striking because you can really see that there, you're closer than you are to many district court judges when you argue a district court case. Oh, yes, for sure. And, and, and so- And same with the Court of Appeals judges. And, and, yeah. yeah, same with Court of Appeals because, and so- what you do, you see what they're getting at um, and their body language and everything. It comes across very closely. And in both the questioning of, um, of Axon's attorney and, and, and of ours, um, you saw that – I think what was going on is, is that they – certainly Gorsuch, we know where he is. <laughs> he said it, right? Um, none, of, none of them were really happy with the idea that constitutional claims had to wait seven years or eight years. That disturbed everyone. The only caveats I heard, Mark, and they they leaned forward, like Kagan led, leaned forward when she said this, and that was, um, well, how far does it go? How, you know, lawyers are going to say everything's constitutional, right? right. So everything's right. going to be a constitutional claim. How do we stop that? They're going to gum up the works at the administrative agency, which I, I thought was a little bit of an ironic claim when the whole problem right now is that these things are taking five, six, seven years because the administrative agencies see it in their uh, benefit to uh, hold people up and use the process as the punishment to force settlement 98% of the time at the SEC. So, and um, I also thought that Alito, he sort of leans back and he sort of like looks almost like he's sleeping for a bit. He's not, his eyes don't close, but he's very relaxed and lean back. I, I uh, but then he, he comes forward to ask the question. And he asked a very good question. I thought of this, of the solicitor general uh, was in Thunder Basin, there are three factors, right? Is it completely collateral? Um, there, and, and, right. Is this and, question different from the question that the, the administrative agency right. is trying to answer? And there's a number of other, but he says, does it have to be all three or does it just have to be two or is it one if it's a lot? So that's a good question. It's never been answered, even though Thunder Basin has been around for more than a decade. And it is, it, it's more like they were using the Thunder Basin. Well, if they all go this way, that's what you have to do. But that they've never ruled that. I thought that was a good question. And it's interesting. I did find it the answer of the Solicitor General, amazing. He says, number one is dispositive. If it is wholly collateral. No, no, no. It wasn't. It, it wasn't. It was meaningful judicial review. Meaningful right? ju- 
meaning that was that was the one that he that he really put all of his weight on. I thought. Oh, I th you could be right. You could be right. I mean, and and, and what I thought was, I, in fact, what I thought you were going to say is that yeah. Alito then asked the question, well, what's what's meaningful? Because you're the, the government's view is that getting judicial review seven or eight years down the line is enough. Is that really meaningful? And, and I thought that was a very important question it, that Alito asked as it, well. It, it is a good one because um, we don't think it's meaningful at all because the injury has already been done to you and can't be corrected. That so the right. injury of appearing in front of a, a tribunal that's improperly uh, or unconstitutionally constituted. Right. And so meaningful, as as Alito said, he says, any any you either have it or you don't. And if you have any judicial review, that's meaningful. So he's he's I don't think he's buying that. And I did think the two justices who were most concerned with this were Sotomayor and Jackson. Um, I did think it interesting that uh Jackson seemed less um, conversant with the SEC's procedures. Hmm. She did seem slightly less conversant. And I'm wondering. They haven't been bringing enough cases in the D.C. circuit. That's, exact, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking. Or D.C. We don't do that's all up in New York. But anyway, so I, I did find that kind of interesting. But she did. Oh, I just meant that they're bringing all their cases oh, in front of ALJs. ALJs. So. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> so I do think. Um, but they were all their main concern was that. Uh, people would be trying to avoid the administration, you know, rather than going in there and saying like our, like Michelle Cochran, I didn't do it, <laughs> not right. wanting to get to did I do it or not question, and then using procedures to to uh, get out of it. So they, I, they don't want the mind run of cases to, right. to, to all become constitutional controversy. Exactly. And, and so um, but I didn't see um, a lot of sympathy uh, for the for the government's position from anyone, really. I mean. When you're when when you're the solicitor general and you're getting sort of pounded by Kagan, you're you're not. It's not a good day for you. It's not. Sotomayor offered a little bit of of solace to the government, sort of asking the question, "Well, how is this any different from when you appear in a district court and you have to go through all of this?" Uh, but the but I thought the the very good answer given there was when you have a district court judge, that person is properly appointed and constitutional, and everything is on the up and up. And so if you if there's a delay involved there at least the jurist you're appearing in front of is a proper jurist. And that's not the case for Michelle Cochran in front of one of these SEC ALJs. It's not the case for Axon in front of the FTC ALJ. Yeah. And, and Axon, he, he did answer that very smoothly, I thought. And, and he being Paul Clement, Paul Clement uh, yes, formerly exactly. of Kirkland and Ellis, now of Clement and Murphy, yes. uh, did a fantastic job for Axon in right. the oral argument. And, and so um, I, I um, did think that uh, the, the constant one of the problems from having litigated these cases for so long and, and also doing the amicus briefs for so long is that all the lower courts keep poo-pooing free enterprise which was an sec case so uh i'm i'm glad that these guys um have i'm glad that these guys have uh have the bit between their teeth on that particular issue yeah i am too and and the other thing i thought that came up at the end of uh, of the uh, Axon argument that I thought uh, uh, Paul Clement did a really nice job with was pointing out that uh, with the Collins decision that the Supreme Court had handed down recently, sort of suggesting that there may not be as much of a remedy after the fact in one of these cases where the problem isn't with the appointment of the ALJ, but it's the removal protection or some some other kind of objection. He said, that's all the more reason that we need 
to enjoin these proceedings up front and fix the problem ahead of time, because if the remedy on the back end is going to be unsatisfactory, then we really shouldn't be putting people through of these tribunals. I thought that was a fantastic point to make. Yeah. And I, I thought it hit home as well. And I, I do think that Roberts also was uh, concerned and he also hit free enterprise pretty hard. And I, I've had such frustration with everyone going to Thunder Basin. I know Peggy has, she, that, that, uh, that has been a big problem. Um, because uh, the, the SG called or the deputy SG called it Thunder Bay a couple of times. Yeah. I thought, come on, <laughs> it's so it's so buried so deep in your brief, you don't even remember the name of the case. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, well, I I do think though that um, for both these cases, I think that we can say that there's going to be some movement in the pro liberty, pro constitutional direction. And the question is, how great will that uh, movement be? That's right. And I look forward to seeing you. We'll be right back.